Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the scene. One person asks another for advice about a sensitive topic. Maybe it's about unrequited love or an embarrassing health problem. And the issue definitely is not about them asking, but about asking on behalf of a friend. But we all know who it's really about, don't we? And somewhere along the line, the pretense slips, and it's an admission that there is no friend at all, just their own problem, which they're seeking help for. Well, just as in those circumstances, it's obvious that there is no friend. When we come to these, some of Jesus' parables, like this one, shared just days before his crucifixion, there is little doubt about who or what he is talking about. It's pretty blunt. The main characters are barely disguised. There is absolutely no confusing who the main subjects are and the point Jesus is making. So look down at verses 33 to 40, and you can see five subjects in this parable. First, there is the owner of the vineyard, then the vineyard itself. There are tenants tasked with caring for the vineyard and producing fruit. Fourth, the servants sent to collect the rent and a share of the harvest, and finally, the son. Now, the 60-second exegesis of this parable is quite simple. The owner is God, the Father. The vineyard is the people of Israel. The tenants are Israel's leaders. The servants, the prophets. And the son is Jesus. Now, the imagery of the parable would have been very familiar to Jesus' listeners. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the image of the vineyard being applied to the people of Israel. Passages such as Isaiah 5, known as the song of the vineyard, would have come straight to their minds. Passages that describe God planting and caring for a vineyard that it was then explained to be the people of Israel. Similarly, the listeners would have understood straight away that the servants sent by the owner were the Lord's prophets. Those prophets were rejected, attacked, abused by the leaders of their time. And therefore, the tenants in the parable are Israel's leaders. And so, by the time you come to the son, the meaning of the parable is clear. Jesus is not talking about running a vineyard. He is predicting his own rejection and the coming murder at the instigation of the religious leaders of his day. If there was any doubt as to whether this was as plain to them them then as it is to us now, just look at verse 45. It says that when the chief priests and the Pharisees hear Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. So that's it. Point and specific judgment on Israel's leaders done. Explanation and meaning clear. Religious leaders burned. Mic dropped. Walk away. Job done. Look, even if we say that there's an application for today, it's tempting to suggest that this parable is only for leaders. Maybe it's for hypocritical and power-hungry religious leaders, or to stretch politicians and industry fat cats. And if that is the case... Most of you listening will be tempted to log off right now and just grab an early lunch. Well, please don't. Tempting though that is, and tempting though it is to limit the scope of this parable, I have to say that as I've grappled with these verses, there are warnings here that we all need to see and heed. So before judging the tenets of the parable from a lofty righteousness, consider, all of us, how we may be more like them than we choose to admit when we, in our hearts and actions, reveal one a generosity spurned, two, privilege abused, and three, responsibility evaded. If we're honest, I suspect there are parts of our hearts that are far too similar to the tenets of this parable than we would like to admit ourselves. We do reject God's generosity, we do deny the privilege he gives us, and we do avoid our responsibilities. And where does that all start to go wrong? Well, in this parable, it starts at the very beginning, right from the very beginning when we see generosity spurned. 
So let's look at that first. Look down with me at verse 33. What do you learn about the vineyard's owner? We see that he planted the vineyard, so it was his creation. He put a wall around it, so it was distinct from the land around it. He dug a wine press so it would be fruitful and built a watchtower to protect it. This is a caring landlord, not a negligent slumlord. The vineyard, remember, is Israel. So this is Jesus reminding his listeners that God chose them. They are God's chosen people, marked out to be a royal priesthood. They are his treasured possession. But hang on, you might say. That description of Israel in Deuteronomy is also echoed in 1 Peter, where it's applied to the church and those who put their faith in Jesus. Well, friend, I'm glad your mind went there before me, because in many ways, don't we also enjoy many of God's blessings? We live in his creation, enjoying his good gifts. He protects us. He provides us with what we need to thrive. The fact is that even in the midst of a pandemic, we are still distinctly blessed. We still enjoy many of the good things when compared to previous generations or our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. Not just personal blessings like wealth or home or family or church, but gifts of common grace, such as the NHS and the availability of vaccines. There can often be a gap between our knowledge of what we know and what we perceive to be our experience or how we're feeling about God. So intellectually, we can know that God's reach extends over nations. His hand guides the arc of history but we can still doubt his ability to reach down and protect us against microscopic viruses and the pain of ones lost early to disease. In times such as these, we need to remind ourselves more than ever of who it is that owns the vineyard, who has placed you where you are and what gifts has he given you. I know that there will be some listening today that are not in a fruitful vineyard, but you are in a pit. And if that's where you are right now, please know that he is also there with you. But for many, we are not in the pit, and yet we still complain and grumble as if we were. We dismiss God's good gifts like the tenants. It is generosity spurned. The children's charity I work for and lead Spurgeons works with thousands of families a year. Families who are struggling to cope and who may be spiralling out of control. These families often see what they don't have compared with others who they may look to as being better off. And there are loads of agencies and individuals, professions, professionals and neighbours who are all too ready to tell them what they're doing wrong. But the experience of our work with those families is that leaving these families with just a list of their problems and deficits achieves very little. What leads to transformation is giving them an asset-based model, what they can do, what they have already, and what they can use to help them out of their situation. They need to help themselves to live a more positive life. In family support, asset-based models are far more successful in transforming their lives than deficit-based models. So I wonder if you live a life from the perspective of a deficit or an asset-based model. The owner gave the tenants a good vineyard. What has he given you? What are your assets at work and at home? Do you see those as something that you have earned or as a gift given you, given to you by a good God? Now, I wonder if you see yourself as a tenant or a freeholder in waiting, if only you could get rid of that current landowner. 
Well, if we begin to resent uh, giving God honour and praise for what he has given us or deny his gifts to us completely, our hearts begin to drift to where the tenets of this parable take us. Worship and thanksgiving is one of the most important spiritual disciplines we can hold on to in these times. When life seems rubbish, when work is unbearable, God does not expect us to be falsely happy or glib or give him empty thanksgiving. But don't deny him his authority. Don't deny his goodness and what he has done for you. Please don't skim over verse 33 at the beginning of this parable. It is so easy to rush past it to the real action later on and to miss the truth that is important for us to remember and hold on to. Remember the owner and who he is, the good things he has done. He provides and he protects. Generosity spurned is destructive. And as in this parable, it can also lead to privilege abused. In the parable, the owner appoints farmers as tenants. They have a privileged position of cultivating the vineyard. They are left in charge of it. Now, when I was about 10 years old, me and my friends loved grabbing whatever we wanted and claiming it with a very dubious legal argument that possession is nine-tenths of the law. This was just a ridiculous childish mantra that allowed the strongest child to take away what they wanted and keep whatever they wanted. Well, the tenants seem to have the very same attitude, don't they? Once in charge of the vineyard, they wanted nothing to do with the owner. Yet considering all that he had done, the owner's expectations seem pretty reasonable. He had given them everything to produce a good harvest, and what did he ask for was a share of that harvest. But... These tenants were not in the business of profit-sharing, but profit-killing. Twice servants were sent, twice they were attacked, so the owner sends his son. As I read this parable, one of the things that strikes me about the tenants is the way that they use their privilege, and how it can echo how we use our privilege. Once we start on the path of generosity spurned, it is really easy to deny that we have any privilege at all. If we imagine these tenants, for example, blinded by their greed, they could not see what they had been given, only what they wanted, and they were going to get it, whatever the cost is to other people. The tenants had a privileged position. They were in charge of this vineyard, this good vineyard, and how did they use their privilege? To deny the owner what was rightfully his, and there's no sense in this parable that the tenants used their role to care for the vineyard. I wonder if you have stopped and considered the privilege that you have, where you can deploy your privilege, whether at work, at home, across friendship groups, or in your community. Now, I co-lead a ministry here at All Souls called the Ergon Fellowship. That's a 10-month program for those in their 20s and 30s seeking to spend time learning and reflecting on the depth and breadth of what God's Word teaches us about our calling to be workers. The group of young adults often hold quite strong assumptions that because they're not very high up in their company's hierarchy, they have very little power to be salt and light in their workplaces. We spend a lot of time discussing managers and bosses and the pain or joy that they can bring. But what's more challenging for the group is to examine their own privilege and power. Privilege is manifested in many different ways. Just think about yourself for a moment. Are you white? Male? Are you young or old? Do you have a disability? Now push yourself a little further in self-reflection because these are not the only ways in which privilege is manifested. Perhaps you have a technical skill that colleagues depend upon. 
Are you able to have conversations and raise issues at work that others, whoever they may be, cannot? Are you the gatekeeper, the person who is responsible for controls and processes in your work that others depend upon? I wonder how long you've been in your current job. Have you been in it longer than others, and therefore are you the one who holds a lot of the organisational memory? How do you promote or undermine certain aspects of your workplace or organisational culture? I wonder if you're the one who starts the gossip, or the one who organises office socials. Are you the one who helps a colleague, even if it does not benefit you in any way? You see, you may be very aware of your disadvantages, but are you aware of your privilege? Now, even after consideration of prayer, if you think you cannot think of any privilege that you possess, let me remind you of the ultimate privilege that has been given to you, my brothers and sisters. If I recall John chapter 1, it says that to all those who have received Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Christian, what greater privilege can there be than to know that the one seated at the right hand of the Father gave up everything so that you could take hold of that title? You are a child of God. CEO is nothing compared to COG or child of God. We have a title, a heavenly status and assurance that affords great privilege. I wonder how you are going to use it. The tenants were given a privileged position over the vineyard, yet they all, all they could do was plot over how they could become the owners. They used what they had for evil, not for good. We may not think we are capable of doing what the tenants did, but abusing our privilege to the point of being prepared for murder may not be in our DNA or in our uh, CV. But each time we diminish or elevate ourselves at the expense of others, is that not exactly what we're doing in our own heart? Generosity spurned, privilege abused, these lead almost inevitably to the third point, responsibility evaded. The tenant's responsibility was to care and cultivate the vineyard, to produce fruit and in reaping the harvest, in reaping the harvest to acknowledge the owner and what he had done for them. Now, we may not have the theology of salvation by works. That is a wrong theology. But we still have a responsibility to live a life transformed by grace. In many ways, for me, the most disturbing verse of this passage comes after Jesus has finished the parable and he tells his listeners, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. When I was a student, there was a well-known challenge we used to share with one another. We used to say, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's a bit of a cliche by now, and I've not heard it used for quite some time, but I think it's still a helpful challenge to think about our responsibility. In mentoring younger Christians, I'm often asked by them what my goal is as a follower of Jesus, or what does success look like as a Christian? With experience, and I am that old, my answer has become shorter and shorter, so that now I'm pretty sure that my answer can be reduced to just one word, faithfulness. The problem is that it is such a hard and big word to live out. For example, faithfulness, I believe, assumes fruitfulness. Reading so much of the Bible, I cannot escape the association between those two things. 
Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widow in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James chapter 1 verse 27. You see, the tenants were so eager to have everything at their owner's expense, they would ultimately lose it all. God's kingdom is given to those who will bear fruit. We are not arguing salvation by works, but I am saying that you, to you, is given a great responsibility as being a child of God. Is your life marked out by responsibility evaded? Or is there evidence that your fruitfulness makes an overwhelming case to convict you of faithfulness? This is a parable, ultimately, of judgment over Israel's leaders, but it is also a warning for us. I pray that your life, my life, is not one of generosity spurned, privilege abused, and responsibility evaded. This parable is a story of generosity spurned, but it could have been one of generosity accepted, leading to a life of worship. This is a story of privilege abused, but imagine what it could have been if privilege was acknowledged and used, not for, not for diminishing, but for the flourishing of the vineyard. This is a story of responsibility evaded. Yet another story with different tenants could be responsibility embraced as an opportunity to demonstrate a loving response to the generosity and privilege gifted to, to us by the owner. This parable was a judgment on the leaders of Israel, but it is also a warning to us, a warning to know the Father and recognise the Son. It is, the o- it is only when we do so will the parable be transformed into a better story. You see, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He is the one who brings together history and eternity, the keystone that gives integrity to all things and holds our lives together. The Son calls us to live in response to the Father's generosity, to live up to the privilege of becoming his children, and to the one who asks us how we will live in response to the grace that he, show, he has shown. How will we be fruitful in the face of our faithfulness. To him be all honour and glory and praise. Amen.